Thank you. Feels comfortable. The place is not that badly worn. I can stand here and look in the faces of many of my friends, people who I worked with for years. Uh, some students still in your your uh, five years of the th of the second year, but I, I'm sure you're enjoying it, and the tuition is helping us pay our bills. But it's wonderful to be back here with you and have this opportunity of uh, of sharing with you some ideas. Um, in 95, we came and the school was in receivership. And for the next number of years, a whole number of us put together a plan and many put together funds to make this a reality. Staff, bore, staff and faculty bore the burden of the difficult times, but it was their enormous investment that ultimately made this a reality. Uh, some stay forever, don't they? It's nice, nice to see you again. Uh, some just never leave. Oh, this, he's been here since, I think, Luther tacked the 95 Theses to the wall, wouldn't he? <laughs> that was the first book that you, that you uh, gave out, wasn't it, Hugh? Lovely to be here. When I, when I finished my work here at Tyndale for two years after president, I served in the part-time in the foundation on the campaign, and then a year ago, uh, well, but a year and a half ago, I was invited to this role. There are three world Christian bodies. There's, there's the Roman Catholic Church or the Vatican. That's about a billion one. Then you've got the World Council of Churches, about a half a billion. That includes the Orthodox and the mainline Protestants. And then the World Evangelical Alliance, about 650 million people it represents. So those are the three world bodies. And when I was invited to come into this role, and eventually Lily and I decided that's what we would do, uh, but there had never been this position in the WEA before, so when I asked what was I to do, I had to make it up. Uh, raise my own support, of course, but then make it up. It was in the first summer, it was a, last, a year ago this last summer, and we kept seeing the, the reports of the famine in the, the Horn of Africa. And the more I looked at it, the more I had a sense that that's where I should go. So I talked to Lily and she said, what will you do? And I said, I have no idea. What would you accomplish? And I said, I have no idea. But the urge continued, and so I called Dave Toyson, president of World Vision. He and I were friends, and we had consulted on this role when I was invited. I said, Dave, here's what I'm sensing. What do you think? He said, that's absolutely the place to go. He said, we have so many workers in the various camps in the East Ho in the Horn, and for you to come as representing the world body, it would be of enormous encouragement to staff. It says something to government, and it's just a, a way of publicly getting the word out. So I got a flight and I went to Nairobi. And he said, by the way, we'll look after you. You can travel with us you, to the refugee camps. We'll look after your travels. So I got to Nairobi and all the plans fell through. Uh, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. So I'm sitting in the office of the Evangelical Alliance of Africa with, uh, with uh, Ea Fadu, and I said, Dea, has anybody been to Mogadishu? Oh, he said, you can't go there. No, I said, has anybody been there? Now, Mogadishu is the capital of Somalia, which is out right on the, on the edge of the horn. It's the place from which the pirates moved into the high seas. It's the law, most lawless land in the world. And just a few months before World Vision had been thrown out, they were feeding a half million kids a day. And I had heard just three days before that Al-Shabaab, which is the Al-Qaeda group, had been pushed outside of the central part of Mogadishu. And I thought, well, maybe has any Christian been there? And 
And they answered, you can't go there. It's too dangerous. No, I said, has anybody been there? No, you can't go there. I said, well, let's see if we can. He said, there's no flights there. So I found a flight on the, on the Internet. A plane was going the next day from Nairobi to, uh, to Dubai, and they were touching, touching down in Mogadishu to drop off some supplies, and they had two seats available. So I bought them, and I said, hey, yeah, we're going. We went to the embassy of Somalia in Nairobi. We got, we got visas, and they, he couldn't understand why we wanted to go to Somalia. And so I had this constructed plan that we were really going there for reconnaissance to see where the Christian organizations could get back. Well, he didn't believe it, and I was, it was a stretch for me even to say it. We arrived, standing in the Mogadishu airport, and just behind me there was a, another white. We were the only two in the, in the airport, and so you, you kind of find each other. It's interesting how this happens. <laughs> and he was a photojournalist from Paris, and he said, what are you doing here? So I gave him my reconnaissance story, and he wasn't quite sure what that meant. Then he said, well, who's looking after you? And I said, oh, well, we haven't got that far yet. He looked at me, and in full articulate English language, he said, you are one effing idiot. <laughs> Sometimes particular words have emphasis, and it did that day. <laughs> and I thought, maybe he's right. Eventually, I was pulled into a side room, and the immigration officers, they said, we can't let you out of the airport. It's just too dangerous. But you sit there for a while. And so we sat there for about an hour, and eventually this gentleman came in. He was shorter than me, but he walked into the room. You knew he had presence. People just, they just respected him, and you knew he was somebody of note. I was put under his care. He was a warlord, a warlord that was a good warlord. He was working with the expats who were trying to reconstruct Somalia, the government of Somalia. I walked outside, and there was a truck with five soldiers with AK-47s, an aide-de-camp, and that was the bubble that looked after us wherever we went in Mogadishu. I asked the Lord for protection. I wasn't sure that a warlord with an army with AK-47s was the way, but when it comes, you say, thank you, Jesus, and move on. <laughs> and so we moved about. But these expats had come back, had many Somalians had gone away to study. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all around the world. And a number had come back to Mogadishu to try and reconstruct a new government. And as you, you, you may have noted two weeks ago, a new president was elected. These expats were staying in the hotel that this warlord owned, and that's where he put me, because he had, an army, he had his own army of 100 that protected this hotel. It was right next to the government building, and so these, these expats, these ministers... They were staying in the hotel I was staying in. It was the end of Ramadan. It was in the late afternoon, and all had gathered in the courtyard waiting for sunset so they could have their meal. And so my friend Amir, the warlord, he had a kick out of introducing people, uh, introduced me to people as uh, Crazy Brian from Canada. I was kind of his star pupil of the, of the week. And he would take me everywhere and introduce Crazy Brian from Canada. But as we got talking to a number of the ministers, someone said, uh, Canadians are cowards. And I said, oh, why would that be? <laughs> he said, you, go to, you all go to Nairobi, but no one comes to Mogadishu. You're the first Canadian I've seen here in years. Why have you come? And I thought, well, might as well tell him. I said, minister, I'm a Christian. And you and I know what the world thinks of Somalia and Somalians. 
It's a lawless land. Your pirates take ships on the high sea. Your religion cuts off the arms of those who steal. And we know how you sexually mutilate your girls. We all know what the world thinks of you. But I'm here to say that God loves Somalia and God loves Somalians. Now, that was kind of a perfunctory thing to say. I've preached about the love of God all my life. And it isn't that words have magic, but sometimes words invite the spirit. And in that courtyard of Mogadishu, that late afternoon as the sun was setting, when I offered those simple, perfunctory words, it was, it was as if a spiritual bolt electrocuted that courtyard. And I felt something I had never felt in my life. In that instant, I was their brother. Something was transformed in just the saying of the word. It was transformative for me in my first foray in this, in this new role. A number of things have happened since. I'll leave that for another time. But as I was leaving the airport, as I was going into the airport as we were leaving sometime later and going through the metal detector, I saw a young Somalian was, was managing it. And I looked, and he, what he had on his sweater, I couldn't believe. And I thought, the kid doesn't know what he's wearing. I, so I said, is this true? He said, this is true. And that's what was written in English on his sweater. Yeah, but I said, do you know what's true? Underneath was John 3.16. He said, I do. I said, what is it? He told me. And then he told me about his conversion and what Christ meant to him. I thought, here in the most lawless land in the world, the most radically fundamentalist Islamic terrorist base in the world, this Somalian 22, 23-year-old good-looking kid was simply saying, I'm going to be who I am as a witness of the gospel. I went, sat down, waiting to go, and the immigration officer who earlier had, had looked after us came over, to, and I thought he wanted to shake my hand, and so I stood to shake my hand. He didn't want to be his handshake. He wanted a hug, and he didn't want one hug, but two hugs. And finally, he said, can I give you my name and phone number? Because you need to come back. And when you come back, please call so that we are ready. As I thought about that young man and about those that are Christians within Somalia that are underground, what does it mean? What's the gospel story for us today? I look at what's going on in the U.S. today, and one party wants to be more Christian than the other. What does it mean to be a Christian there or in Somalia or here in Canada as tomorrow the, the House of Commons votes on a bill with respect to the defining of life. Uh, what does it mean? Jesus announced his kingdom for the Jews. That was sweet. Those were sweet words. They'd been pretty incompetent in the building of kingdoms. Oh, David was probably their best and even in the middle of that he floundered and so when Jesus comes along and says we're going to have a kingdom, they know exactly what's going to happen. The Romans will be thrown out. The Pharisees will be pulled into line. At least if you aren't a Pharisee, that's what you think. If you're a Pharisee, you think you'll rule. 
Everybody has it configured what the kingdom means. After his baptism, Jesus had an encounter with Satan. And in how many minutes? A few minutes. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. This is Luke 4. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, man does not live on bread alone. Matthew adds this, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. We'll pick that up later. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all the authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it'll all be yours. Ah, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, and he quotes, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, says, do not put the Lord God to your test, to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. There is a combination of ideas that flow out of this encounter that I think provides the very core for what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what the essence of the kingdom is. And it's simply this. It begins with turn the stones into, into, into bread. Jesus had fasted for 40 days, and so that wasn't a bad idea. He could have done it. No one would have been hurt. Novel idea. Except Jesus said, no. -uh. You don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Well, simple question. How do you make bread? Oh, you could turn the stones into bread, but Jesus didn't do that. You see, if he did that, then we would have a model, and we could go to the Horn of Africa, and we could turn stones into bread. It doesn't work that way, as you read in your prayer. God isn't about magic. He isn't about taking a, a problem and, and just turning it around as if the, as, as the, 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 the buildup to the problem was of none effect. You see, a famine... You, you, have, you have both a famine and you have a drought. A drought is an ecological disaster. And the ecological disaster usually becomes, comes about because of what we have done. A drought is a political disaster. When I was in Mogadishu, there was all kinds of grain, all kinds of, of, of food, except the political situation wouldn't allow it to be distributed. So when Jesus said, I'm not going to do that, what was he doing? He was saying, I'm not going to allow this to be turned to myself. You see, at the very heart of our culture, and that culture, and Satan takes his cues from our culture as the culture takes his cues from him, narcissism is at the core. Narcissism, self-interest. I become the core, the center, the attraction. And Jesus said, it isn't about me. Because all the words that proceed from the mouth of the Father is his creation. So how do you make bread? You make bread by giving, by taking the seed, and it dies, well, it looks like it's going to die, in the ground. The skin, the epidermis falls off. It eventually develops a root, and it grows, and it produces multiple grains. 
You see, the nature of the kingdom is giving. It's not getting. It's not taking stones into bread to make it my convenience. It's about giving. Giving is at the heart of creation. There's nothing more central to the way our world works than giving, investing, taking what I have and putting it into the lives of others. I watch this. Our daughter and husband, they live in Newmarket, and they have three little guys. And I watch as she and, and Jesse and her grandparents, with great joy, invest our lives in them. We don't ask them for things. We give. And that's the nature of creation. Oh, there's this, this theology called prosperity theology, where the more you give, the more you get. You see, every, every heresy is based on a truth. And the truth is that God is generous to us as we're generous to him. It's like with others. If you love others, they'll love you. If you're commending of others, they'll be commending of you. If you're nice to others, they'll be nice to you. Well, by and large, there's some jerks that haven't caught on yet, but that's the way it works. Prosperity theology works on the basis that as you give, God replenishes, and that's true. Whatever you have in your hand, you can only be replenished when you get rid of what you've got. It's as simple and elementary as that. But the core of the kingdom is in the power of giving. The antithesis to narcissism, to getting, is to giving. Then he takes them to show them, shows them the kingdoms. He's, and he said, I have all of these in my power, and Jesus never disputed that. He said, if you want to rule these, just bow down and worship me, and you'll have them. Oh, the desire to have power, to rule. Satan works from the notion of triumphalism, that I can control, I can take power, I can exert my influence, and people will do as I like. That's what power is about. But what Satan didn't understand is the essence of the kingdom, as it's not getting but giving. It's not controlling, but it's serving. This service model is so counterintuitive. Uh, look at the political campaigns. Could you imagine any one of the, uh, the, the campaign uh, candidates would come forward with a service platform? Wouldn't that be interesting? But the kingdom is about serving. We've lived by what's called the golden rule. And when you go to Matthew and John, you will find this notion that as you do to others, they'll do to you. And so we said the, we kind of commend ourselves that the golden rule is a biblical principle. But that really isn't. Jesus said, the heathen do that. I mean, what, how much better are you when the heathen do the same thing? And he, Jesus offered what I would call the platinum rule. The golden rule is, yes, do to others as they would do to you. But the platinum rule is give your life for others. Love those that hate you. There is something powerful about the serving motif that provides the kingdom with an essence that is different from any others. So he said, don't, don't get, but give. Don't control, serve. But then he comes to this last one of jump down from the temple and the biblical promise is that he will keep you from hurting yourself. And this kind of buffaloed me. I, I couldn't figure out how that fitted in with the other two. What was at the heart of 
Satan's assumption with Jesus. If his first assumption was narcissism, his second assumption was triumphalism, what, what is this third assumption that Satan brings to the conversation? Well, it's egotism. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to have a follower. And to have a follower, have followers, you have to be dramatic. And of course, Jerusalem, uh, it, it sold, it lived off the hubris of ego. And so if you're going to be a, a leader of these people, do something dramatic and you will have an instant following. What's the antithesis of ego, of egotism? It's humility. Now, I'm a type A personality. That's sweet, gentle, laid back, inoffensive. You don't buy that, George? You don't buy that. You see, humility doesn't come easily to a type A personality. Humility is not something that you are. Some, humility is something that you practice. And so when Jesus said, humble yourself, uh, he was saying parenthetically, you better do it because if you want me to do it, you're going to be really in trouble. Humility is something that we practice. And when you look at these three ideas of the kingdom, they, they triangulate, don't they? You have, you have giving, you have serving, and then if you have at the apex, humility, which in a sense embodies the other two. Humility allows one to give and not keep. It allows one to serve and not dominate. At the very heart of this triangulation is humility. Here in school, in your plan profession. What is the way to find energy in what you do in your relationship? Practice generosity. Practice service. Practice humility. It was in the Second World War, as the story goes. There were, two, there were three American GIs that had been raised in the same Midwest town. They had they'd gone to the same school, the same club pack. They had the same football team. They had lived their lives together as friends. And now they were in the Italian theater in the, in the Second World War. Late one afternoon, as they were trying to escape uh, fire, one was cut down and was killed. The other two guys, they had no time to feel the emotion. They simply had to react. They said, where are we going to bury our buddy? And one said, well, I saw a graveyard just back over the hill. Maybe we could find a place there. And so lying low to the ground, they pulled their dead buddy back to this little Catholic church with a graveyard. So taking out their collapsible shovels, they began to dig. And as they did, they heard a noise and there was a, they saw a priest running from the little church. His his clerics flapping in the breeze, and he came to them, and he, he was waving his hands, and he came up to them, and he, he said, in his faltering English, are you Catholic? They said, no, we're Protestant. Oh, he said, I'm sorry, you can't bury here. And the, the soldiers were befuddled. They didn't, they didn't know what to do, so they said, well, what do we do, Father? The Father looked around, and finally he said, well, you can come out here outside the fence. You can bury them here. So they buried them there and went back to the camp. It was early in the morning before sun was up, and 
these two guys were restless, having lost their, their dearest buddy. And one leaned over to the other and said, you know, we really didn't say goodbye to him. I think we should slip back and just make our final goodbyes. And so they pulled on their clothes and they slipped out before sun came up. And they got out to where the, this graveyard was. And they couldn't find the grave. It was gone. I mean, it was literally gone. There was no mark in the ground. There was no, there was no broken grass. There was no spilt. It was, they were, it was gone. And they just, they thought, you know, are we crazy? Had, no, this was the, that's the. Ch-. And then they saw the priest coming, getting ready for, and he saw them and he came tearing over. And before he had a chance to speak, one said, but father, what happened to the grave? The father said, Oh, I went home last night, and I just, I couldn't sleep. It's so wrong. It's so wrong. So I came here early this morning, and I moved the fence. Humility says I was wrong. And the face of the gospel allows us not to be doormats, but to be door openers. Allows us to say we're wrong, allows us to be generous and allows us to serve. Humility is a sign of deep strength and confidence. It's not an example of fragility and weakness. And so whether you're in collegial relationships, whether you're in an organization, whether you're out in the political campaign, the gospel is about the kingdom, and the kingdom, as Jesus reminded Satan, is about giving, it's about service, it's about humility. Amen. Let me read to you a prayer in closing. This is from Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And may you be blessed in what you do. Nice to see you again.